they're telling us all of the problems that they're having. And then we have to be empathetic with them. In other words, we have to try to put ourselves in their place and understand how they're feeling. So then we can treat them and, and care for them. And that kind of wears off. Every, every patient kind of takes a little piece of you with, with them. We have Roger Lipper on the Freedom Stories podcast today, and he is an ex-professional, a longtime medic, and now an educator for first responders. He has an incredible story, and I'm so excited that you get to hear it. So here is Roger. All right. On the Freedom Stories podcast, we have Roger Lipper. We are excited to have you, Raj. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Donnie. Thanks for, uh, for asking me on. Yeah, absolutely. So I briefly explained uh, what you do um, in the intro, but we didn't really get into the weeds of it. So in 60 seconds or less, give me kind of the history of Raj. <laughs> the the history of Raj. Well, um, I'm a 63-year-old guy. Uh, I'm married to Leslie, um, who uh, it's our second marriage for both of us. And we really believe that we did it right the second time. Uh, I have two adult children, uh, Kenny, who lives in Tulsa, and Julie, who lives in Liberty. Um, I got three grandkids, uh, 14, 7, and 5, uh, a couple dogs, and a partridge in a pear tree. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in 2019, uh, I retired after a 34-year career uh, as a paramedic. And uh, I started my career out in 1985 in Toronto, Canada. Uh, we were very, very busy up there, and I found that physically and mentally I was starting to, uh, to get worn down. Um, I was a U.S. citizen because I was born in St. Louis, and uh, I could come back here if I wanted to, and I looked all across the nation for a good paramedic service to work for, and I picked Johnson County Med Act. And I worked 28 years as a paramedic and a lieutenant and a battalion chief, and finally as a division chief in charge of operations. Uh, since I retired, uh, I am teaching now uh, in the paramedic program at Johnson County Community College. I work as a lab uh, clinician, which basically means that I get to teach practical skills to paramedics. And then for paramedics to graduate, we run these scenarios where um, we give them a patient that's got makeup on and they've got a script of signs and symptoms and they have to come in and run it like a real call. And we have people that play firefighter, first responders and uh, family members and, and all that. So uh, we get to teach all that. And uh, it's a lot of fun. I, uh, I always wanted to be a teacher when I uh, went through and got my, uh, my phys ed degree. Uh, I kind of stumbled into being a paramedic. And now at the end of my, my career, um, I get to teach. The other thing that I'm really passionate about uh, is first responder mental health. In fact, everybody's mental health. Um, but it's really become a, uh, a big topic in uh, law enforcement, fire, and, and EMS circles. Uh, I finished a certificate uh, right after I retired in first responder trauma prevention and recovery. And at the college, I get to teach three 90-minute lectures on resilience and mental health. And I also volunteer for a nonprofit called the First Responder Support Team Midwest. And we teach peer support to uh, first responders so they can go back to their agencies and start a peer support team. 
And we also do what's called a West Post West Coast Post Trauma Retreat, which is for first responders who are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. And we try to help them either get themselves right to retire or get themselves right to, uh, to go back to the job because the things that we see as first responders uh, aren't things that people should, should see. And I might add that uh, I actually went through the WCPR uh, retreat myself in, um, in May of 2021 and uh, was an incredible thing. So uh, yeah, that's kind of who I am. So how, how many first responders, if you could generalize, how, how many or how, what's the percentage of them struggle with some sort of trauma or mental, I guess, illness, if you mental want to. Illness. And it's okay to say mental illness. Yeah. We can, we can say mental illness and it doesn't mean that it's a life sentence because it can be treated and it can be, uh, it can be corrected. Is it everybody? Um, like if you're in that profession, is it just going to be a thing? Yes. Let, let's just put it this way. I mean, every time that you go out as a first responder, I'd say most of the time that you go out, you're going out on somebody's worst day, right? Somebody's calling because they have a situation that they can't control at home and they need somebody to come and control it for them. Uh, so uh, we uh, see the trauma. We're not experiencing the trauma ourselves, but what we're doing is experiencing secondhand trauma, or they call it vicarious trauma, secondary trauma, uh, because they're telling us all of the problems that they're having. Um, and then we have to be empathetic with them. In other words, we have to try to put ourselves in their place and understand how they're feeling so then we can treat them and, and care for them. And that kind of wears off. Every, every patient kind of takes a little piece of you with, with them. And um, so the statistics show that 25 to 30 percent and some of the, the studies have shown upwards of 40 percent of first responders uh, have uh, symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, stress and suicidal ideations. And the difficult thing for, for us to understand is that for us to get hired, we have to pass a pre-employment psychological exam. So you would think that we would have low rates of uh, these, these mental health issues. And when you compare that to the general population, the general population is six to 15% of stress, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, suicidal ideation. So something happened from the time that we got hired when we had a clean bill of health until the time we finish our career or get in the middle of our career. And what is that? It's all the things that we see. We see people on their worst days. We see terrible traumas with bodies being ripped apart. Um, we see um, uh, and feel the pain that, that people have when we go in and, and uh, somebody's died. And we have to explain to them that their loved one is, has passed on and, uh, and that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of that trauma that we soak in ourselves uh, from the people that we see and that we care for. And that causes mental health issues. Yeah, no, absolutely. And as a youngster who's looking at those heroes, well, it used to be, I don't know if it still is. Uh, I mean, especially when I was a child, I just, I wanted to be a hero like that. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be a firefighter. I wanted to be a police officer. 
Um, well, and, and, and it's interesting that you say that, right? Because um, my generation that's, that's slowly um, getting out of the business now, um, we were all influenced in the fire and EMS circles by the show Emergency. John Gage and Roy DeSoto with the Los Angeles County Fire Department, Squad 51, uh, going around California doing all these, uh, you know, heroic things and, and all that. And I remember uh, watching that in junior high and then uh, the repeats were on in high school and emulating some of that stuff. And I didn't really even think about it until I was in a car accident um, when I was in university. And um the guy that was driving our pickup truck, I worked for a construction company. Uh, um, the impact was on the passenger side and that broke one of the guy's ribs and the guy that was driving wasn't wearing a seatbelt and, and he flew out the, uh, the driver's door and I was okay in the middle. And I, I watched fire and EMS and law enforcement pull up and, and take care of my two work partners. And I thought, hey, this is pretty cool. And, um, if I don't get a job as a phys ed teacher, then, you know, maybe that's something that I could do. And indeed, after a couple failed tryouts in the Canadian football league, um, teaching wasn't as exciting as, as the, that's so why I had applied for the, uh, the EMT program up in Canada. And that's how I got into the business. Um, I think part of the thing that we do as an industry is that we tend to glorify a lot of. Uh, what's going on to get people to, to come to the business. But then it's very difficult when you get there because there's a lot of pain and a lot of suffering and, um, and that. And if we said, hey, here's the problems that you're going to have if you come to the business, people are going to say, I don't want to do that, which is part of the issue that we're having right now is that there's not a lot of paramedics that are out there um, because they're seeing you know, the pandemic and um, they're seeing all the health issues that come up in mental health and that, and people don't necessarily want to do that job again. So are you uh, glad that you did it? I would not do anything different in my, my career. I am, uh, I loved, uh, taking care of sick people. Uh, um, I saw a lot of them and it, uh, you know, it, it hurt me in, in some ways, uh, that I've, you know, I've, I've taken care of since I've retired. Um, after I, I took care of a lot of sick people, I got into the uh, supervisory aspect of it. So that way I helped develop uh, paramedics and, and lieutenants and, and team leaders and EMS. And we did a lot of, of good programs like developed an active shooter program. So that way fire and EMS could get into scenes of active shooters uh, with a law enforcement escort. Uh, I did SWAT medics uh, for, for 20 some odd years, uh, providing uh, you know, uh, medical conscience for the SWAT team leader and that stuff in Johnson County, I would not do anything different. I love the job. That's why I've gone back to, uh, to teach it because I still have a passion for it. And, um, I have a lot of, of stories that I can, I can tell to help people understand what they're going to see and what they're going to do. And, um, I love seeing the aha moments in my students when they finally get it. And they do the things right, and uh, yeah, I would, uh, I would not change my career one little bit. So, what is some of the hardest stuff you've had to overcome? I know we're kind of generally speaking here about mental illness and the industry, and I know that's you know a big part of your heart. But what personally has been the the hardest thing for you to overcome? So, the, the, I, I want to. We'll put it in two broad categories. First of all, there's the physical toll that the job takes. 
And then secondly, there's the emotional psychological toll that the job takes the physical toll. Um, you're constantly, um, not treating your body right. We work 24 hour shifts. Some days you're up for 24 hours in a row running calls all night. Um, you know, and you're drinking coffee and, and, uh, eating crummy food, uh, process, highly processed food and that kind of stuff. So you wind up with uh, high blood pressure and, and, you know, issues gaining weight and that stuff. So you're always trying to take care of yourself physically. And, uh, with me, um, you know, my knees, uh, eventually gave out. Um, and it's not only from the job, it's from playing football and sports and hockey and SWAT and all that stuff. But, um, and that's how I, I got hooked up with you, Don was, was the injuries that I had at, um, at work that, um, I've had surgeries for, and I'm in the process of four surgeries to get two knees replaced. And, and you're certainly helping me with, uh, the rehab and all that. Um, the emotional psychological aspect of it is something that I was very, uh, I was lucky our, our department in Toronto knew about it and hired a staff psychologist in 1987 who told us about this initially. I thought, Oh, that's not me. But then I ran a call of a, a young guy who stole a motorcycle that cracked up on the highway. And, uh, I had a transference reaction. I thought that it was my three month old son laying there and I had a hard time dealing with that. And, uh, so I've always been kind of aware of the mental health aspects of it. Um, and, uh, that's been the hardest part after I retired, I found that I wasn't thinking very positively about myself. I've got accomplishments, um, you know, in my, my resume and that stuff, that's enough for two or three careers but I thought I was a failure and uh, I've been able to go back and see a therapist that understands what first responders do. And um, I'm coming up on almost January will be two years of, of seeing uh, Eric and working with him on stuff. And we're just starting to, to kind of wrap things up dealing with trauma and dealing with the things that you saw and dealing with, with me, particularly as a, a supervisor for so many years not only did I get secondary trauma from the patients that I took care of, then I was absorbing secondary trauma from um, the crews that I would get in and encourage them to talk things out. But then I wasn't healthy enough to talk my secondary trauma out. So uh, we had to go back and do a big, long trauma timeline and um, talk about, about all that stuff. And that's, that's really, really difficult to go in and open yourself up to a stranger and start talking about your deepest, darkest things and, um, I went through this West Coast post-trauma retreat uh, in May of uh, 2021, and I also learned there that uh, there's many things that happen as you grow up as a child that kind of form how you, you see things and, and do things, and uh, that was an eye-opener for me. Um, but then it made sense that you know things kind of repeated itself uh, as it does for, for so many uh, people that things that happen to you as a child will then happen to you as an adult and keep on going until you kind of say, okay, let's, let's stop that. And, um, so is that like a combination of like Freudian therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy? I mean, well, I it's, it's really the, the Freudian things not there, but the cognitive behavioral therapy is exactly what, what I was going through where, um, you start, you, you start getting a negative viewpoint of yourself because of things that you take the blame for that really wasn't your fault. 
you know, so um, we have frequently, you know, I'm, I'm doing things at school. I hear this from interns quite a bit. I'm doing things at school. And every time we run a cardiac arrest, we always get a pulse back, but I'm out in the field and I'm doing it out in the field. And this person died and um, it, they must've died because I didn't do CPR well enough, or because I didn't get the airway fast enough, or I didn't do the IV fast enough because they always live when we're in doing scenarios. Well, part of the scenario is to prove that once you resuscitate somebody, you know how to keep them alive once you've got their pulse back. So they always get their pulse back. Um, so you can, you can prove that other part of it, but in the field, I mean, you know, we talk about two certainties in life or death and taxes. Mm -hmm. So, um, when somebody dies, then as many good medics do, they go back and you look at what happened and how could I have done it? And, um, instead of blaming other people, we're a very passionate group about what we do. And we tend to internalize everything because we don't want to admit that, Hey, I think I screwed up. Um, but you know, we internalize it and think that it's our fault. Is there and a stonewalling that happens eventually? I think that what, what eventually happens is uh, there's two conditions. One's called burnout and one's called compassion fatigue. Burnout comes from your, you've got so many tasks that are coming and the calls keep coming. And then you have uh, external pressures about the state requiring you to get certified and uh, the county requiring you to finish your paperwork for insurance and all that kind of stuff. And then you get in trouble because you're too busy doing the job to get all this peripheral stuff done. And it makes you a burnout. Well, compassion fatigue is something where you're just giving and you're giving and you're giving, trying to help so many people out. And eventually you kind of run out. And in, if you mean stonewalling, I mean, that's, that's what happens is that you eventually get to the point where you've given so much that um, you, you don't have anything left to give and you feel like you're blank and you're empty and you, there's no more passion for you to do the job. Uh, you know, I saw it as a supervisor where people who came into the job and their uniform was perfect and their hair was cut and they were shaved. And after so many years, then all of a sudden you see that their shoes aren't shined anymore and they don't care what their uniform looks like. And their attitude is really, really bad. Uh, they have this really, really dark, dark humor that, um, I mean, we use humor to cope, but some of it gets to the point where it's like, whoa, that's, there's a problem there. Mm. So when we see that stuff, then we, we try to get them hooked up with peer support and then try to get them, uh, you know, pushed over to a therapist if peer support can't happen or can't handle it. So peer support is a really cool deal. It's instead of having a problem right off the bat and trying to go to a therapist to see it, what we do is we, we train people on how to listen and some very, uh, good psychological first aid techniques to, uh, to talk to people. And it always seems to make sense to the person that's sitting in the seat behind you uh, or beside you um, because maybe they've gone through the same thing. So we allow them to, to talk this person out of it. And if this, the peer supporter says, yeah, this is above what I can handle, then we move them on to see a therapist. So we're trying to, to get a support network built up uh, that doesn't involve going to choir practice, which is the term for going to the bar afterwards and drowning your sorrows and that, because that's a maladaptive coping mechanism where you think it's good for you, but after you wake up and you're really, really badly hung over, you still have all the problems. You haven't solved anything by, by abusing your, your alcohol or other substances. Of all the first responders, 
how many struggle with this? 99%, 100%, 10%? Well, I think I think a lot of it depends on um so when when we talk about that, I think you're you're looking at at um there's probably everybody in there has a call or two that you know they they struggle with. Um you know, my wife um, was, is also a paramedic and teaches at the program, but she did 20 years on the road and has a couple specific calls that she can remember that, um, were tough calls to handle where, um, you know, one was, uh, a cardiac arrest and, and, uh, the family just didn't handle it very well. And, um, it was difficult to try to try to, you know, get them calmed down and see what was going on. And then there's another one. And it's always difficult when, uh, there's a child involved um, because you kind of tend to think that, you know, you don't want to see a child get injured and see them in pain. Or if they, they wound up dying, then you think, you know, they had so much life ahead of them that they didn't get to experience. And um, so, you know, you have a kid that's hit by a car or something like that. That's difficult to, to deal with. So, um, but then there's other people that seem to be magnets and, and they just get bad call after bad call after bad call. Um, so yeah, I think everybody has, has a couple calls that they struggle with. Um, and, you know, we talked about 30 to, you know, 15 to 40% of people wind up with symptoms of, of mental illness and that, um, you know, the good part about it is it can be treated. So you had mentioned cognitive behavioral therapy. That's what I went through. Uh, for two years. Uh, they also have a, a, a therapy called eye movement desensitization reprocessing or EMDR. And it uh, kind of um, mimics rapid eye movement sleep where your eyes go back and forth looking at a, a flashlights or buzzers in your hand type of thing. And it follows neural pathways in your brain. And it's really, really interesting to do it. And then all of a sudden it kind of locks things in that uh, hey, you know, this is wrong thinking and here, let's do EMDR on the right thinking, the correct thinking. And um, can you give me an example of like wrong thinking versus right thinking? Well, I'm trying to trying to come up with something that that's generalized that, you know, so um, we've got a, I've got somebody that goes out on a, on a cardiac arrest and um, it's a, it's a, a infant that uh, was, was found in the crib um, and, uh, the baby has, uh, their mouth and their airway full of formula and it's in cardiac arrest. Uh, the baby was left in the, in the crib with the bottle and that stuff. So, uh, as you, uh, you're going to the scene, you're, you're pretty pumped up about it. Maybe you're a newer medic. You haven't had a lot of these calls. And, uh, so they're doing CPR and, uh, you're going to do the airway um, and you're suctioning all this fluid out and that stuff, or let's, let's say you're going to do the IV. So that way you can get the medications in and you struggle a little bit getting, getting the IV. So we do a thing called an intraosseous where you stick the needle into the bone and that, that has a path that gets into the vasculature. So medications can, can work. So, um, you struggle with the IV, you wind up starting an IO, you give the medications, uh, eventually you get a chance to do CPR and you're thinking, okay, you know, this baby's been down a while. I'm going to do my compressions and we're going to get this kid back and you do your two minutes of compressions and, and nothing happens. So when it's over with the baby's pronounced dead 
and um, you go away and you think, geez, that's my first baby code. And oh, the family's so upset and I feel bad for mom and I feel bad for dad. What could I have done better? Mm, I didn't get the IV fast enough. Maybe if I would have got the IV faster, we could have given medications. So now I start to think that this baby died because it's my fault. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Or I didn't do compressions well enough because we didn't get a pulse back. But then when you go through and you um, process that with a therapist, the therapist or even the peer supporter, like I was on, on this particular one, uh, I could sit down and I could say, okay, well, um, you know, how long was the baby down? How long did the baby have the formula in their lungs? Do you really think that there is a good opportunity because the formula in the lungs is a bad thing? Uh, and the kid's not going to get a lot of oxygen to start with. And um, so there's a two minute difference between getting the IV and getting the IO and getting the medication. in. do you really think that when you gave nine different doses of this medication over the 40 minutes that you work this cardiac arrest, that two minutes was going to make that big of a difference. Mm. And if they've been um, in cardiac arrest, you know, for the 12 minutes it took you to drive there, but how long before that and, and that. So you, you turn around and you try to try to correct those things that you're not responsible for this baby's death. Yeah. Right. You know, and, and that'll be up to the coroner to make those decisions as to how and why and what the cause of death was, but it certainly wasn't the responder that did that. And we do that so many times out there on, on things. We're so hard on ourselves that we expect perfection. Mm. You know, and you know that it's not, you can't be perfect all the time, but if you don't do something right, then there's times where that, that could cause problems. Yeah. So for maybe youngsters that want to get into the profession or those who are already in the profession, what is a recommendation that you have for them? Well, I would, I would say that, um, this isn't all doom and gloom. Um, you know, we're talking about, um, things that you see, but there are many different things that are out there that help you cope. And one of the things that I, I do when I teach at the college in the paramedic program is we teach uh, positive coping skills. We teach self-care. And, um, you know, these are terms that are coming more and more aware of everybody with the pandemic and the mental health issues in the pandemic, but take good care of yourself. Um, you know, have good nutrition, exercise, which is very, very important to, uh, to get out and to keep yourself not only physically strong, but when, and you understand this, Donnie, running your fitness center is that when people get physically strong, it also helps their brain and helps them become mentally strong also um, that's out there. And then uh, figure out ways to get yourself away from the business when you're at home and you're on days off. So uh, with me, I like doing projects around the house. And uh, since I've retired, I've renovated a bathroom. I've raised my deck. I've put a pergola on my deck. When I get done with this, I'm going out and working on the patio. Um, so there's you know lots of things that you can do that way. Um, I've started online guitar lessons so I can take my mind off of, of things doing that. Um, I like to go fishing, um, and that, and I, I kind of got away from doing those things while I was at work. Cause I was so wrapped up in work and, and that, so you need to do self-care. Um, I take my dogs for a walk and when I'm walking the dogs, I try to stay present and 
feel the sun on my cheek and feel the wind um, on my head and listen to the dogs as they walk and listen to the birds and pay attention to what's going on instead of retreating into my head and replaying all these bad things and that. So uh, there's, there's many different things that you can do to take care of yourself. Now, if you're in the business or you get in the business and you start having problems, it's okay to feel things. Many times we numb ourselves, or if we start to feel something, we push it down. And I liken mine to a trash compactor. I felt bad things and I pushed down on the trash compactor and I put it away. And eventually the trash compactor became overloaded. And that's when I started to, to go to therapy and, and learn to talk it out. But that's why we do peer support. Talk to somebody on peer support and get your feelings out. And getting your feelings out and actually feeling these things helps you process stuff. So that's the important part. They, there's a phrase out there called stop the stigma because there's a stigma about mental health and that, oh, you're crazy if you've got mental health issues, but you're not, you're normal. And what you're feeling is 100% normal. And if you learn how to deal with those things, then there's no more stigma. And the last part is uh, it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to say, hey, I'm struggling with this and get some help. And I always throw the last one on top of that is it's not okay to stay that way because there's help that's out there. There are culturally competent therapists that are out there that can um, help you and help you get back and understand what you're going through and, and that. So that's what I'd say is, is be open, be positive. Very important to be positive, develop some grit in yourself. I mean, just getting through paramedic school and firefighter Academy and uh, police Academy shows that you have passion and that you have perseverance, which is grit. And then translate that into the field when you get out there and start working. Yeah. And I, and I think so much, about physical health because of the industry I'm in. Yeah. But it is so true with mental health as well. And the nice thing about physical health is we don't quite have the same stigma. Right. But yet at the same time, it's really hard to get people to come in and take care of themselves physically. It's really, really hard. And yeah. to add the stigma to mental health, I, I can't even imagine how much harder it is to get people to understand, hey, you are not weak by getting yourself help. In fact, when you do get yourself physically and emotionally healthier, you have a chance to make a bigger difference. Perfect. You're, you are absolutely correct on that. When I tell people, I say, if you sprain your ankle, do you go to the doc and get an x-ray and maybe a, a walking boot? Well, yeah. And then when you get out of that walking boot, you go see the physical therapist. So that way you can get that healed up and get it strong again. Correct. Well, yeah, I said, it's the same with your brain. You know, there are, there are physiological changes when you are exposed over and over and over to trauma in your brain, the, the, the prefrontal cortex that handles all the emotion actually will shrink because everything's rolling around in the, what we call the lizard brain the reaction brain. Um, and, um, yeah. So you can, you can do that, but then the same thing with mental health. If you go and you get mental health therapy, mental therapy, um, then you can, you can fix that also. Yeah, that's right. There's help out there. And so Perfect. Raj, man, I'm so grateful for you coming on to this freedom stories podcast and kind of bringing to light some of this mental stuff, you know, that the heroes are dealing with 
uh, again, I, I hope that uh, those who are listening that have struggled a little bit with it will be able to identify it early. And then from that, um, go and get the help. And of course, you know, physical therapy uh, for the physical stuff and not be afraid or ashamed to, to go uh, and tackle that with emotional health. Yep. Well, thanks, Raj. I appreciate Thank you, you uh, coming on. And more importantly, I appreciate what you did for the last couple of years and, and what you continue to do in education and, and keeping our, our heroes safe. So I appreciate you. Thanks for asking, honey. I'm thankful for Roger that he came on and just shared blatantly his experiences. He shared a story quickly about that 19-year-old who got into that motorcycle accident and he projected his three-month-old son onto that young man. And that was the beginning of his experiences of anxiety and depression and the inability to sleep. If you're struggling with those type of symptoms and they're consistent and they're chronic and they're recurrent, I do urge you to go and find some help. There are people out there that could help you. If you are in the first responder, uh, police, fire, medic profession, know that the stats are high and you can find somebody that can help you. There's people out there. Of course, if you're struggling with anything physically related, a knee, a back, a neck, a shoulder, an elbow, we'd love for you to come and check us out. Feel free to reach out to us at info at freedomptc.com or follow us on one of our social media outlets. Instagram is at freedomptc and Facebook is Freedom Physical Therapy and Training Center. Remember, subscribe to our podcast so you can get updates on when the next Freedom Stories go live.